Ladies and gentlemen, it is episode 163 of the Movie Maniacs podcast. Haven't spoken to you since we did the Gardens of the Galaxy Volume 3 review. We are back, and there is a lot to cover, a lot to discuss. Fast and Furious 10, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, um, Killers of the Flower Moon, Indiana Jones. We just have a lot to talk about, so this may end up being... Uh, quite a long episode. So um, I'm going to cover some of these topics from least to most importance. Um, I do want to mention this uh, particular documentary series that I watched last week. Um, I'm a big MMA fan. and have been doing jiu-jitsu and MMA for five years. So that's mainly the reason why I wanted to highlight this particular documentary. Um, on Netflix, uh, there was the McGregor Forever documentary miniseries. And for those of you who don't know, Conor McGregor is easily the biggest star in MMA. And this documentary series covered his last four fights. Um, I'm a you know big UFC fan, big MMA fan. So this was something that I wanted to watch. My whole family ended up watching it. And I think this was a really well put together documentary. And particularly just if you're a sports fan in general, I think that this is an interesting documentary for people to check out. Four episodes. I think they're only about 45 to 50 minutes in length. Uh, we went through it about in a two or three days. And I really liked the documentary overall. It was certain aspects of it. I felt they kind of steered clear of this certain aspect of our you know subjects life etc and and they I think they kind of blurred a few things but overall what I really took out of this documentary and this is why I think a lot of other people outside of the MMA world may enjoy this documentary is you get to take a look at one of the greats in our sport or at least one of the most popular ones nowadays you know Conor McGregor's been on a bit of a skid as of late. Hopefully he can come back. But regardless, there was a certain point in time where this figure was at the very top of the sport. And popularity-wise, he still is. But he has had a few losses uh, since then. It's just really fascinating to me to get to watch and, and get a really close and personal look at the mindset of Conor McGregor, what drives him. There were actually a couple quotes that he drops throughout this series that I was like, I need to write that down. Like that's something that I should take with me and that I could, you know, find a way to implement in my everyday life. And that's, I think, some of the best stuff about sports documentaries. Not only do you get the opportunity to get a up close and personal look with you know, one of the, you know, one of the titans of sport, but you also uh, get to see a different side of them. It also, you get to analyze their mindset, which is one of, maybe that's not what everybody enjoys about sports documentaries. Maybe it's just seeing a closer look at that person, but I really enjoy getting to analyze what drives them, 
the way they approach what they do. That stuff is really fascinating to me. So there were certain parts of this documentary that really gave me some of that. Other parts of this documentary I don't think are strong. There are things that they leave out. You know, they don't mention the assault allegations and some of the, you know, controversy, um, deeper controversy, I should say, that surrounds this figure, Conor Gregor. And that, it was pretty telling why they left that out. But, you know, it's not a completely honest documentary. At times, it does feel like propaganda. And I think that's the case with a lot of sports documentaries. If you go into this with that in mind and kind of push past all of that and don't just fall for everything this documentary presents to you because it's obviously not all true – and that is a critique. I didn't love every aspect of this documentary series. But there were things I was able to draw from this series that I was hoping to, to get. Conor McGregor is one of the more fascinating minds in MMA. So to get to analyze his mindset that while this documentary isn't necessarily following him when he was at his peak, there was another documentary called uh, Conor McGregor Notorious that I think that was in 2020, 2021, which – followed his rise to, you know, double champion status, all that stuff. But this documentary series tracks his last four fights and some of the recovery from the, his last fight where he snapped his ankle. But three out of, the four, out of those four fights, he loses. So you get to see a different side of him with this documentary series. And I really did appreciate that. It it gave me a different side of this figure that I really enjoyed. There are critiques, as I've mentioned, that you can have for this, and I certainly have them. But uh, I think that this was a very solid documentary. Even if you're not an MMA fan, I would at least give the first episode a chance. And if it doesn't seem like something you're interested in, then leave it there. I don't think if you like if you don't like the first episode, then I don't see you enjoying the rest of the series. Even though it gets better, I don't think it is enough to really bring fans over or bring uh, skeptics over. I should say. But I really liked this documentary. I would say really like I thought it was good. Certainly things to critique here. But anyway, thought I would give that a brief mention since that's something that I saw recently. Uh, but I'll move past that because I doubt uh, a lot of people have that much interest in this documentary series. Um, let's talk about the Cannes Film Festival for a minute. This is This film festival in particular has two pieces of – you know, move movie news worth discussing that I wanted to cover. Um, film festivals, I, I've never been to one. Would it would be very cool to to go to one, but you know, I, I you know I I don't ever foresee myself going to any in the future. Maybe at some point, I don't know. Not anytime soon. They're always kind of aggravating to me because it's so weird to me. And I understand it, you know, this is kind of the more artsy side of the movie industry, you know, for the Oscar winners and a lot of the movies that we have no idea about right now. But when we get to the Oscar season, these movies will start to come out in bunches and all of a sudden there's all these great movies that like you never were expecting to, you know, to, to come out or were uh, even on your radar. At least that's always how it feels to me. It feels like there's always that part of you know the movie season which is right about now and then the venice film festival later on where oh my gosh everybody's getting to see those movies that i kind of would like to see right now and they're just 
you know, kind of keeping the movie away from everybody. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of hot and cold on aspects of the film festival. I get it. It's not really my thing, though. I don't really. I could. I would be perfectly happy if those film festivals never happened. But I feel, I I understand the purpose of them, and in that case, you know, I understand it. We had two movies that debuted at the Cannes Film Festival that I feel like are really worth mentioning. Now, I'm going to start off with the, there's a positive and there's a negative here. The positive, I'm going to start with. We'll end on a positive. I think this episode is going to end on a positive, so I'm not really concerned about that. The positive of this, you know, the positive stuff that I got out of the Cannes Film Festival was Killers of the Flower Moon, first and foremost. This movie is probably my most anticipated movie of the year outside of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. But even then, it's kind of neck and neck. I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Like Christopher Nolan is like the titan of, in my opinion, of modern movies. Him, Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Denis Villeneuve, and then, you know, Scorsese still going at it. That that I have a lot of excitement for Oppenheimer. Every time I see that trailer, it gives me goosebumps. I feel like it's going to be a slam dunk. I don't see how it goes wrong. Everything I'm hearing about, you know, what went into making this movie just gets me excited. Christopher Nolan is one of those directors that still manages to blow my mind every time I see a movie of his. Um, I've only seen one film of his in theaters, and that's Tenet, which I liked. I know not everybody else did, but I really liked Tenet. I've seen it multiple times since then. Uh, Nolan is one of the first directors that I really found a passion for. Like it took me a while to where to where I would go, oh, this is a director I really like. Christopher Nolan was that first director, and then it probably was. Um, geez, I wonder who that next director was. I don't really know, but I mean. I don't really have a, a power ranking for like directors, but I know Nolan was the first one that I really like fell in love with and kind of went through all of his work. I think next was David Fincher, David Fincher, and then probably Tarantino, and then Scors and then Lynch, Scorsese. Lynch is kind of the one who I always go back to and say he's my favorite filmmaker because there's something so different about his movies, something so different from any other directors. But if I had to do like just my top five, like my Mount Rushmore, my Mount Rushmore in no order, it would be like Mount Rushmore's fourth. So I'll say five. It would be Lynch, Tarantino, Nolan, Scorsese, and Fincher. I Fincher, Nolan, Scorsese, Tarantino, Lynch. Yeah, those are my five. What's really exciting to me about this year is that I'm getting a Nolan film and a Fincher film and a Scorsese film. So three of my favorite directors are making a movie this year or will have a movie come out. That feels really special to me. It really does because I really like Ari Aster. And I really like Jordan Peele. Hereditary is the exception to what I'm saying, but... Really, only those five directors are guys that I just am like fully like I will continually support. And like, there's something about their body of work that I'll always go back to. Uh, Tarantino, I still need to see Reservoir Dogs, 
And then I'm good. I'll have seen all of his movies. I don't know what the holdup is on me seeing Reservoir Dogs. I do need to see The Following by Nolan. It's blasphemy that I haven't seen that. Um, and then there's a lot of Scorsese stuff that I still need to see. I've seen all of Lynch's films, and I've seen all of Fincher's films. David Fincher was probably the first director that I ever like sat down, looked at his IMDb, and was like, okay, I'm going to go through every movie this guy's done. And I did it in about the span of three to four months in the buildup to Mank, which was all the way back in 2020. It's 20, 2021, my bad. 2021. Uh, it's crazy to me that it's been that long since um, I, I I start like I saw seven and like seven blew my mind. No other like I, I, that ending. You know, Patrick and I talked about that. We did the whole Fincher retrospective, by the way, which you can go back into the archives of this show. It's one of my favorite series that we've done. Fight Club, Gone Girl, Mank was surprisingly one of the best conversations I thought we had. And then Seven was great. There were a lot of great conversations in that retrospective. To have three of my favorite directors making something this year is really exciting to me. And then we also have, if I was to say number six right now, it would be Denis Villeneuve. So he's also got something coming out this year. It just feels like a lot of my favorite directors are making something this year. And I'm very excited about that. That's one of the things that has me most excited for this year where all around, I don't know how 2023 is going to end up. We've had some good films, some great films, and I'm going to talk about some of those uh, in this episode. But I, I want to go back to the main topic here. Martin Scorsese, Kills of Flower Moon. This is a movie I'm very much anticipating. Goodfellas is my favorite Scorsese film. I love The Irishman. I know a lot of people like really jumped on board with that. I've seen The Irishman like three, four times. I've seen Goodfellas probably eight times. I, I've seen that movie many, many times. And so I, I've gone through, I think, most of Scorsese's stuff, but there's still some things that I need to see that I need to go back to. Um, Wolf of Wall Street's probably going to have to be one that will wait till I'm a little bit older. But anyway, I, I, I'm a... I really, really enjoy Scorsese, and he's also a director that I'm excited to continue to follow because the first time I saw Goodfellas, uh, I didn't really get what all of the hype was about, what all the praise was about. Like I was like, okay, that's pretty good. Then I think two years later, uh, I think a, like a Letterboxd uh, reviewer like told me I needed to watch it again, and so I was like, okay. And so I watched it that night and was like, wow, I couldn't believe what I missed, like what, how could I not get this the first time? It was incredible. And I instantly boom, top 30. And then I watched again the next day, I, boom, top like 15. Then I watched it again. I watched Goodfellas three times in a week. I don't think I've ever done that with a movie. And now I've seen it probably eight times. It's great. Every time I watch it, it's a movie I've never gotten tired of. So what I really like about Scorsese is I can go back and watch his films and I have a whole different appreciation for him. Like Raging Bull is a movie I hear is like great and I've seen it, but I feel like I need to go back and watch that movie again because I think it's an it's a great film and the cinematography is some of the some of my favorite that one of my favorite opening shots in a movie, but it's a movie I feel like I need to go back to. I feel like I need to go back to Taxi Driver. Some of these movies 
are, are ones that I feel like I need to go back to. So that's one of my favorite things about him as a director is there's always something you can pick up on a second, a third, a fourth viewing. And there's still more of his movies that I need to go through and see because his body of work is so large and and grand. I mean, from the 70s to still, he, he's making movies. And he's still making great movies. I thought The Irishman was one of his best films. Uh, it's at least a top five for me. But Killers of the Flower Moon is a movie that I particularly have a lot of interest in. I feel like it's going to be an, a great movie, obviously. But the book itself and the source material... Killers of the Fire Moon, the book by David Grant is one that I saw or that my bad that I read, and it was one of my favorite books that I read that year. It it was a great great book, and I encourage people to go check out that book. It's a fantastic read, and if you have interest in this movie, I think this is a really good book to read. Or if you want to just have the movie itself surprise you, I understand, and I, I wouldn't uh, discourage you from doing that. But it's a great great book. And uh, really well written and such a fascinating untold story that Scorsese's tackling here. And I'm very, very excited to see uh, to see this movie. I'm happy that it'll be releasing in theaters, uh, even though it'll also be on Apple TV+. Plus. I, I do hope to see this movie in the theaters. I'm very much excited for it. Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, back in a dramatic role. It only seems like Scorsese is the one that's really pulling him back into those great, great performances now. So that's exciting. We're probably going to get a great Robert De Niro performance, Jesse Plemons. This is just going to, I have no doubt in my mind, this is going to be a great movie. The only question is like, is this going to be like Scorsese's best movie? I don't know. Do I think it can? I kind of do. I, I, I feel like there's a lot of potential in this movie and the cinematography looks outstanding. I'm very, very excited for this movie and the trailer itself looks great. It's a great trailer. It doesn't tell you too much, but it gives you an idea of the themes, I, I, the DiCaprio narration over it with the with the accent, all that stuff. And uh, do you, can you find the wolves in this picture? Like that stuff just gives me chills. And the, the trailer gave me everything that I could have hoped for as somebody that's been anticipating this movie for years now. For years, we've been hearing about Killers of the Flower Moon, and now I'm finally going to get to see this movie. I'm just incredibly excited and the reaction from can was that it's it's great it's it's a really good movie i'm not hearing stuff like it's his best film ever ever but you know we'll see as more reactions start to come uh but i'm very very excited i watched uh some of the like press stuff that they did uh, after the after the film was shown and uh, hearing scorsese talk is just he's one of the great obviously one of the great arguably the greatest American director in the past 50 years and one of the most influential directors of all time. Uh, but his mind for uh, movie making and, and you know, quote-unquote cinema, which I know has become kind of a joke now, but um, he's somebody that I, I really do love listening to uh, discuss his craft. And that was some of my favorite stuff to be able to listen to from that little press conference that they did. But... Early reactions are really strong. I know people are apprehensive toward the runtime, and I saw that was a bit of a criticism uh, of the movie. But you know, I, I people were saying the Ashman was too long. I, I wasn't that concerned about it. I, I didn't have a problem with the runtime. So this movie being like three, three and a half hours, you know, I, I'm fine with it. I just went all those Scorsese I can get. One of the things that he mentioned recently was, you know, he doesn't have 
a whole lot of time to make movies and he was he, and he has still feels like he has so much more to tell and that's got to be a really odd position for him to be in but i think he's still making great films at his age and i'm very much excited for this movie so that was one of my favorite things to get out of this film festival hearing it was great and then getting the trailer right along with it which was just the cinematography was so beautiful such a well-edited trailer uh that was one of my highlights of that particular week then we got towards the end of the week of that week we got some indiana jones news now indiana jones and dial of destiny i believe is out this month which I'm very nervous for, particularly after the reactions that we saw from Cannes. I haven't seen a positive review. The Rotten Tomatoes score is mixed. Take Make of that what you will. But I read a, a couple reviews, and it seems to have confirmed a lot of the worries that I had for this movie. It, it, it was very concerning. Very, very concerning. And when I, you know, the trailers on stuff, I was really torn because the first trailer, it was just like, you know, Indiana Jones is back and there's the John Williams music, potentially his last score, but probably not. And then, you know, Harrison Ford coming back and all that stuff. And listen, the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of going like, yeah, it's weird that this guy in his late 70s is doing an action movie like it part of that just is really weird uh and that didn't really at first i was like ah it's not probably tears it forward you know it's all good but like when i see him like jumping out of an airplane with like phoebe waller bridge on his back i'm like what's going like this just doesn't feel like the proper evolution of this character it just one of the things that i really took out of one of the reviews i read which was done by ign i'm, I'm sorry i don't have the writer's name in front of me but one of the things that it really pointed out was that the movie's all about like Indiana Jones having to let go of the past. And apparently this dial destiny like turns back time, something like that. I don't know. But Lucasfilm, Disney, Kathleen Kennedy, whatever, they cannot seem to let this character move on and have a proper evolution. That was a problem with Crystal Skull, and that seems to be what's going to be the problem with Dial of Destiny. He's still jumping out of airplanes. The fact of the matter is, guys, and as much as I hope this movie's good, and I'm worried that it won't be, I but as much as I hope it's good, like, is it going to like make any sense for this series to have continued? Like, why could we not have just ended with the Last Crusade? It has last in the title, like, just you know, end it there, please. Like, it's a perfect, it's a perfect trilogy. Like, there's no problem with that trilogy. Say what you about Temple of Dune, it's still a really good movie. That's a solid trilogy. Why on earth Spielberg couldn't have just left it there is so weird to me. Or just it's a rare misstep for a great director, but him and sequels or just knowing when to stop, you know, it, it did not really work out with Indiana Jones. And it's really unfortunate because that would have been one of the great trilogies and still is. And I view it that way. I don't watch Crystal Skull ever. Like, why would I? And I don't ever think about Crystal Skull. It's really just those three films that I, I hold near and dear. And it's why I'm a, such a big fan of this franchise uh, or of really of this trilogy in particular. Last Crusade, I absolutely love. The Sean Carney performance was like a big deal for me when I first saw it. Raiders of the Lost Ark, I watched that in, a re-release of that in theaters for my 14th birthday. 
one of my favorite birthdays I've ever had. Um, it was awesome. It was it, just an awesome experience to get to see that movie on the theater, in the theater. And I've gone back to that movie at least a dozen times. I, I, I love it. It's, it's a great trilogy. Temple of Doom was, I, I, I'm trying to remember what year, I, what, how old I was when I saw that. I must have been 12, 12 when I first saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then Temple of Doom was, it was so crazy. Like I've never, even at the time, like nothing has ever been this out there, but this, you know, the, the, it just captures your heart, captures your attention, especially at that age. And it may have been the one that I've returned to the least, but there's a, it holds a, I think a special place in that trilogy. It does something really different. But Dial of Destiny doesn't seem to be a movie that evolves this character. Uh, it has a lot of the problems, seemingly, from what I've heard, that the uh, you know that the Star Wars films had. Like the fact of the matter is, Disney and Lucasfilm, Kathleen Kennedy, they just don't seem to understand how to handle these properties. And I just wish they would stop. Please stop remaking movies. Stop bringing these franchises that should have stayed dead stop bringing them back like it, it's it just does not seem to have worked out and I'm, it seems as though that is also the case for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny uh, one of my big concerns here and it's not because she's a woman but Phoebe Waller-Bridge in this movie makes no sense to me all of her humor is completely missed it, from what I've gotten the second trailer where you know she's making like a capitalism joke is just awful it's an awful joke or just like not even awful it's just like head scratching like oh disney making a capitalism joke oh okay like yeah that that makes a, a lot of sense it so much hypocrite you know stuff we could get into there that i'm gonna stay clear of but it was not a great joke it's an obvious. It's obvious what Disney is doing with that joke, with this character. You know, I don't mean to be that person, but it's it doesn't take a genius to see that that this character doesn't have to be in this movie, and it'll it won't change anything. It's the same thing with Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf didn't have to be in Crystal Skull. It would still have been a bad film, or it still could have been a good film. You know, it, this character just doesn't need to be here. And everything I'm seeing from this character and from this performance is just really leaving a bad taste in my mouth. Every time I hear dialogue, anything like that, I'm very nervous about that aspect of the movie. The de-aging is just not what I wanted, but I'm going to give it a chance. But once again, I go back to this. It's Disney and Lucasfilm. They haven't been able to put it together since Last Jedi. Force Awakens was like, okay, you know, it, Star Wars is back. Now what are you going to do? And then we got Last Jedi, and it just tanked from there. And it's been an up-and-down battle since then. Last Jedi wasn't good. Rise of Skywalker wasn't good. Then we got Mandalorian. It was like, oh, you know, this isn't great, but I'll take it. And then Season 3 kind of killed the love, I think, a lot of people had for that series. Kenobi... 
a series that I, as a Star Wars fan, was so excited for, was just a, just kind of came and went and wasn't that good. Had great moments, had a great Qui Gon Jinn cameo, and some great Darth Vader moments that were undercut for some some weird reason. They were always undercutting, and the final like standoff between Vader and Obi Wan was one of the most poorly choreographed lightsaber battles I think I've ever seen. It just wasn't good. It just wasn't good. It, there were great moments in that fight, but in so many ways, that series just completely missed the mark. And really, as a Star Wars fan, that is read, you know, the the a Kenobi novel that I got way back when I was like 12 years old and like read it multiple times and loved it. And it was like, when is Disney going to make this movie? It ended up being a television show and they got Hugh McGregor back and Darth Vader, Aiden Hayden Christian's coming back. I was like, Okay, this is gonna be awesome. And then I was like, maybe Disney, Disney can't mess this up, right? And then they mess it up. So it, that was really concerning. Boba Fett was just a complete miss as well. Andor, I heard was good, but I didn't watch it because I feel like this, you know, Disney Star Wars Lucasfilm thing, Kathleen Kennedy has kind of burned a lot of Star Wars fans to the myself included, where I don't really want to give them another chance. And now <laughs> they're doing it to Indiana Jones. And that's a main that's a big concern. I don't know why Dial of Destiny premiered at this film festival. Can just doesn't seem like the ideal place to premiere it. I thought it was great they did that for Harrison Ford. And I saw he got emotional. And that's great. I'm glad that he got that moment because if anybody deserves it, it's him. So that's a plus side, I guess, but it also just doesn't make sense why you would premiere this movie at that film festival. This popcorn blockbuster doesn't really fit in, I think, the Cannes Film Festival circle. But uh, I get why they did it. But these negative reactions are are everything that I feared Dial of Destiny was going to be. And that really, really concerns me for what the future is. I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to watch it. My dad doesn't sound like he's going to watch it. I will give this movie a chance. I will review it. But man, I am really, really nervous for Indiana Jones Without Destiny. Moving on from those upcoming movies. Let's talk about a movie that came out a couple weeks ago that I haven't talked about yet. Fast X. The latest in the now 10 film plus a spinoff. Plus a show on Netflix, that's a kid's show, but still, 10 film series. Who would have thought, all the way back in the early 2000s, that we would be getting 10 of these movies? I mean, that, that is just crazy. This is not my franchise. I just want to go on the record and say that Fast, Fast 5 and Fast 7 are really about the, all, the only ones that I can tolerate. Anything past, anything other than that isn't for me. This franchise just isn't for me. It's just dumb. It's a really dumb franchise. And people love to use the turn, you know, the the turn your brain off. As I, you know, the more movies I watch, I'm not acting like I'm some veteran or whatever, but the older I get, the more like frustrating that is like. Oh no, this is a really good film. You just have to be dumb to enjoy it. Like, I don't really understand what that term is. Like, 
is that, that but that doesn't mean it's a good film. If I had to turn my brain off for your movie, then I don't know. Like, hey, my main problem isn't really the over the top action things or, or, or set pieces or anything like that. It's really, it just all comes down to, you know, how ridiculous the story gets. And in, in the end, this type of action is not for me most of the time. It's not that fun. I don't get much of a adrenaline rush from it. You know, for something like John Wick Chapter 4, you know, Keanu Reeves getting hit so many times and stuff, it still never feels like that franchise has gone to the level of Fast and Furious where Vin Diesel literally is just Superman defying the odds at every given point. John Wick, while definitely kind of feeling like a bit on the superhero side, does not feel like he is... Neat that the franchise doesn't feel like it's near the point of Fast and Furious or anything like that. So when people like complain over like the bulletproof suit or the amount of abuse that Keanu Reeves takes over the course of those movies, like I'll give that stuff a pass. But when you get to some of the things that we see in this movie and then them going to space and stuff, it just what started as like a as a, like a movie that was like people that capture like a culture of like the street racing and and th this lifestyle has evolved this spy series and and so i've heard some people go like oh yes fast x it really goes back to the roots of the franchise no it doesn't it, it there it is not quite fast nine level but like this franchise is still so out there so far off from where we started and so in need of like, and it's very unfortunate, you know, especially since the man passed away, but the, the Paul Walker addition to that series and like whatever type of relationship that like Dom and, or Vin Diesel and Paul Walker had is just, you know, it, it doesn't, ha it, it almost misses that nowadays where i really don't have much of a connection with any of these characters there's not a dynamic that i'm really attached to like maybe it's tyrese gibson and ludicrous but like that's a comedic it's, that's something just comedic really that doesn't really add a whole lot to me or to the movie itself besides some jokes but nothing emotional no, no investment no stakes really this franchise doesn't have any stakes in my opinion and there are times where I feel like this movie, Fast X, tries to, you know, get you on the edge of your seat. Like, oh, is, Vin is somebody going to die? And, like, what's weird is, like, this movie, like, uh, no spoilers, but it kills a somewhat prominent character. And it it's so out of nowhere. And I ended up, like, I took my uh, brother Jude to go see this. And... We had a really, I, th I we had a really good time watching the movie, but it wasn't because the movie was good. It's just like we're having a good time, like completely obliterating every stupid aspect of this movie. Like that's the only enjoyment I'm getting from this franchise, and maybe that qualifies as a recommend. But that's not really what criteria I'm going to go off of for this franchise. So I'm not afraid to recommend a so bad it's a good movie. This movie isn't quite at that level though. And it's way too long, way too long. Anyway, there, we have this death all of a sudden in the movie toward, at the third act where this character just gets offed. And I go, well, that came out of nowhere. And then, like, I turn to Judy, we just go, and we start, like, laughing. It goes, it's just out of nowhere. And there's really no, like, 
emotional weight to it at all. It's just like this was so out there. And like I was like, oh, were they like and I go back to like the other scenes that the character had had in the movie, like, oh, were they like setting this up? Is this their is this these writers' version of setting up a character arc and a death? Because wow, like man, this does not really feel like that sharp of a writing, guys. Uh or not that sharp of writing. But, you know, it, there we go. I mean, that's just what you've come to expect from this franchise. And, you know, um, oh, what's his name? Who directed uh, Fast Five? Um, let me see here. I should, have, I should have had this all, should have had this all pulled up. Um, not James Wan. Uh Justin Lin, who directed Fast Five, Fast X, and Fast Nine, um, in a way, like I, I feel like fans of this series like picture him as like the flagship director for this franchise. I don't think he's that great of a director. Fast X isn't that good, and Fast Nine is atrociously bad. Fast Five is like his one claim to fame, but other than that, I don't. The, his other two entries in this series are not that good. He is not directing this movie, even though he was supposed to. For some reason, he left. I don't remember what that reason was. But now we have Louis Lettieri, who directed uh, Now You See Me, Clash of the Titans, the Transporter films, and The Incredible Hulk. Um, his direct directing here is just... Ugh, it's very uninspired. And listen, the man's made... He's made a notable career for himself. I don't mean to bash him, but this is some of the most uninspired directing that I've seen from this franchise. The color palette is atrocious, and this was something I said in my Letterbox review, or no, no, I, this was something I was going to say it, in my Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three review that I think I failed to mention. Maybe I did, I don't remember. But one of the things I loved about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, truly loved, it was shot like an actual movie. And shot like with some like you know cinematic flair and well made direct like well done directing. It you feel like every penny of this big, you know, expensive bud big budget movie, all of that felt like it was on the screen. And I see, like, you know, Fast X, like, I get the stunts, and I get the action, the CGI, all that stuff, but for all that money, they cannot seem to make a good-looking movie to save their lives. And the MCU is just as guilty, if not more so, I'll say more so, than the, the Fast and Furious franchise. This easily was the worst shot of the, of the series in quite some time. The earlier ones, like, too Fast, Too Furious, and the the third one, uh, Tokyo Drift. Like, I didn't love it, those either. Oh, Tokyo Drift, that's the other Justin Lin one. And that movie was okay. Um, not great, though. And with Fast X, the color palette is just really bad, and the directing is just, like I said, uninspired is the word that I would use. But I just don't understand why it is so hard for these studios to get a director or for the director to just put some effort into making a somewhat inspired, you know, 
engaging movie like visually and the directing like i don't feel like the mcu has that and that's one of the things that i've really grown with every installment to just loathe about the mcu loathe is just how conditioned fans seem to be to this really like neutral colored bland color palette and just completely like like it's like chat gpt directed the movie like it's just nothing about the directing and there are there are exceptions to what i'm saying here but has no flair or any real style that i can get a hold of but really the color palette is one of the biggest problems because they all look the same doctor strange had moments where i felt like it got out of that and then that was one of the things i really enjoyed about black panther wakanda forever say as much as you want about no way home and how it, that movie does a lot of things well but uh james watt right james watts directing john watt john watts directing of that trilogy it, visually just has nothing of interest in my opinion but I'll leave that there. That was one of the things I just did not love about this movie is, is the direction in which Louis Jettieri or whatever his name is uh, took this film just did not look good. And he's going to be directing Fast X Part 2. Um, okay, you know, I that does not excite me whatsoever. But I'll leave that there. Um, what The, the runtime, by the way, is completely ridiculous i we follow like three or four storylines throughout this very very bloated uh two hour and 22 minute runtime i felt every minute of it it should have been two hours this movie drags quite a bit in my opinion despite all the action despite all the big you know cgi fest stuff that we get this movie drags, in my opinion, and we follow these storylines that take up so much runtime. And then when everything is supposed to come together in the third act, it amounts to absolutely nothing. Nothing. Like, there's a particular storyline with – if people have seen this movie, they will probably know what I'm talking about. A particular storyline with two, uh, three of the original, you know, crew were following them. Like Pete Davidson shows up. Like we follow this crew. I'll, I'll say Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson. We follow them for such a big chunk of this movie. Such a big chunk. And when we get to the third act, they, they amount to absolutely nothing. They do nothing in this third act. Nothing. And they're like, hey, Dom, we're here. And then, psh, like, they, they, do, they do absolutely nothing. And I, and I literally turned to Jude and I go, we just followed them for this whole movie. And that's what this amounted to? Nothing? It, it just, real. I just sat back and I was like, wow. I mean, this movie just really, script-wise, is doing the bare minimum, if not lesser than that. Um, well, that would be the bare minimum. So, Anyway, scratch that. But the writing here just seems to be the bare minimum of what any of these writers are capable of. Maybe this is the best they can do. I don't know. Get new writers, something. This just does not work for me. The 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 
lazy approach to the story, uh, the lazy approach to the characters. I get that for for most for not most people, but for the target audience that loves this franchise, this is going to be another you know solid addition. And this is, in my opinion, one of the better ones of this franchise. And I'm going to get to those positives. But this franchise is the problems that I'm sitting here with Fast X, the writing, the uh, kind of not my cup of tea style of directing that this franchise has been doing for 10 installments now. It's just not, in my opinion, good. That's my opinion. But that's what this franchise has been doing, you know, since the first installment and has only continued to do now over here at the 10th installment. I didn't love a lot of these action set pieces. There's a couple that was like, okay, that was pretty cool. And I like that. And then there's a moment where I thought, oh, somebody actually did that. And so props to the stunt doubles and to the coordinators, all that stuff. That There were moments where I was like, okay, that's cool. But those moments are, moments are few and far between in this very bloated movie. There are things that I see this movie try to do, taking it back a little bit more. Fam- it, it feels almost self-aware how often they bring up family and all that stuff, which everybody has always felt like it's a big part of this franchise and is. This is the most I feel like the series has referenced that and made that a part of the theme. And I thought that was a, a nice change. But I don't feel like that is handled as well as it could have been. Nevertheless, there are positives to this movie, and I will state them. Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa is hands down the best part of this movie. Every scene he's in is gold. I'm cracking up, and I'm loving this movie. I, I, I'm not being sarcastic. He is he is so good in this movie. I was going to I considered for a second recommending this movie just for him. Because he's always been like this kind of straight-laced Aquaman type of performer and now he's doing something a little bit different here and just kind of go, completely going for it. I loved it. I loved this performance. He's the best Villain, this I can't name any of the other villains this franchise has had. Charlie Theron, I don't know what she's doing in this series, but she's not good. And I, and I love Charlie Theron and Mad Max Fury Road, but she's just not good here. Jace Momoa as the final villain for this series is perfect. He 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 is perfect, and I am not completely dreading Fast X Part Two. Whatever that movie is going to be called. Hopefully not Fast X Part 2, but that's what it's being called right now. Fast X Part 2. I am not dreading that movie as much as I would have because I will, you know, because of him coming back. He will be in Part 2, I believe. There's a cliffhanger at the end, so that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. But he will be back. And that makes me excited because he has some great lines in this movie. He chews up the scenery every time. And Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, they have their, like, funny moments, and Pete Davidson was kind of a welcome cameo. But they don't touch what Jason Momoa does in this movie, and he is hilarious throughout. I I just, I really, really enjoyed and really appreciated um, this performance. And it's what, it's the easily the best part of this movie. It breathes life into this movie, a new burst of energy that I don't feel like this franchise has had in a while. 
I really appreciated. This was a welcome presence. I didn't really love Momo, but what I was getting from him from the trailers. But I really, I once I got like, okay, this is just completely over the top, ridiculous. I was smiling on my face every time he's on scene, and he's in the movie quite a bit. So I gave this movie like a five out of ten because nothing here is just outright bad. There are certain aspects of this movie that actually actually are. The directing is pretty pretty miserable at times. But like a lot of this movie is just mediocre. It's the bare minimum. Momoa boosts this movie up to another level. He's not enough for me to recommend this movie because this ultimately combined with the mediocre writing, the mediocre characters, all that stuff, and all these storylines in this bloated movie that just don't amount to anything and waste so much time. It's not. It's all so much. I cannot recommend this movie. But I just want to put the spotlight on Jason Momoa. He's a lot of fun in this movie. He's just chewing up the scenery. At one point, he he's doing like a Heath like a Heath Ledger like Joker thing. It's just crazy. I don't know what he's doing, but I loved it. I, I it's it's easily the best part of this franchise. Or I, I that was a slip of the tongue, but actually that might be true. He may be the best thing this franchise has ever done. But I'm excited to see him return in the next instant. Once again, I'm assuming he's coming back. That makes me somewhat intrigued just to see more of this completely wild performance. But he really is the best part of this movie. The best jokes from him. All of my enjoyment pretty much in this movie came from him. There's occasionally there's good moments of action. Um, I, I kind of could appreciate some of the stuff they were doing with uh, Dom and all that stuff. But the other storylines that we're following that take up so much time, there's like three. There's John Cena, that's in the in the Toretto's kid. That's one storyline. Marina Rodriguez and Charlie Theron, Dom, and then Ludacris and Tyrese Gibson. And then there's Alan Richardson and Brie Larson. And then there's Jason Momoa. So there's really and he's like in a lot of scenes like by himself. That's why I'm putting him in there. Jason Momoa is in a lot of scenes by himself. So that's it. But even if we take him out, that's five different storylines that this movie's following. And it's way too much. This movie just can't balance that. And that's one of the things I just really love about the John Wick series. It's just John Wick. I, I get the idea of this family and all that stuff. But man, John Wick, easily the better series. And I just like following Keanu Reeves and... I'm good. We have a couple of cool side characters, but that's about it. There's just so much happening in Fast X, and it's too much ultimately. And considering how little of it amounts to anything all that worthwhile, it just it's an absolute mess at the end of the day. I want to say, though, this wasn't a bad time. A lot of my complaints are coming from the fact that this type of series just isn't for me. But I had a really fun time hanging out with my brother. I ended up surprising him by by taking this movie and all that stuff. It was a it was a good time at the theater, late uh, late night showing. I think we saw it at like 8.30, 8.45. So it was like a later showing and stuff. It was just it was a really good experience uh, with my brother. But when I step back a couple of weeks removed, I look at the actual movie. What do I like? What do I not? What I don't like or what isn't good vastly outweighs what I like about this movie, which is Jason Momoa and a couple good action sequences. Most of this is either mediocre to not good, and because of that, I'm not going to recommend this movie, but it's just a not recommend. It's not a strong not recommend. It's just it's a not recommend. It's like a 5 out of 10, 4 out of 10. Pro I think I gave it a 5 out of 10 on Letterboxd. 
So it's it's I I know I know that I gave this movie a lot of you know bad you know comments and, and scathed it in a couple aspects, but this is not the worst that, that this series has done. It's one of the better installments. This franchise, though, to me, just doesn't make a lot of sense. I get why you know it's jokes and action, pretty easy stuff to get an audience entertained by. To me, though, this I think when you actually look back and look at these movies, they're not that good. And this is another ex- case of that. This is, this is not a good movie. But there's some enjoyable factors here. This isn't the worst time. If you're going to watch it, go watch it on IMAX. Go watch it on the big screen. Um, but really, it's it's not one that I will be giving a recommend. But let's move past Fast X. Let's get into the main movie that I'm really excited to talk about. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Very excited to talk about this movie. Okay, now for the main thing to discuss on this episode. I I have so, so many thoughts on this movie. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This movie is every bit as good as you have been led to believe i went in with high you know great expectations uh to tie into spider-man into the spider-verse that i was very much anticipating this movie i thought spider-man into the spider-verse was one of the best comic book movies of all time one of the one of my favorite movies of all time and the best spider-man movie of all time um, I love, you know, those first two Raimi movies and the I, I don't love the John Watts trilogy, but it's fine. Uh, no Way Home is, I think, really solid. <clears throat> but Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, man, I, is by far my favorite Spider-Man movie. And I'm a big Spider-Man fan from the comics, Raimi movies and Into the Spider-Verse. There's a lot to like about this character and what that character means and how Miles Morales is this evolution in, of what Spider-Man can be and how that movie into Spider-Verse kind of showed that theme of, you know, everybody, any anybody can be Spider-Man. And that's that was such a great theme for that movie. And seeing what – I was so excited to see what they were going to do here in part two and how they were going to continue analyzing – the role of Spider-Man and the the characteristics of Spider-Man. And I feel like that this movie does that really well in a lot of different ways. There's so many different things to heap praise upon with this movie. I want to start off with the animation, which is the number one thing a lot of people are going to go to with this movie. Into the Spider-Verse, I thought, was game-changing in how to do comic book movies and just animation in general. We saw more of that style with Mitchells versus the Machines. Across the Spider-Verse is easily the next level. It is a step up. It's taken five years for this movie to come out. It was worth the wait. You can see the evolution in this technology, in the animation style. The way they use this animation... The story panels, the comic book bubbles, all that stuff, the different the different styles, the Spider-Punk style, the Gwen Stacy style, all of those different uh, 
styles from each of the different uni- you know multiverse versus whatever they all feel different and unique in their own and reflect on that type uh, on that spider-man it, and they use that style to tell you about that character in the spider you know in, in the spider woman uh, gwen stacy world you get to see through that world how it reflects on her, and it almost is a reflection on what Gwen Stacy is feeling. And, and you could see how it almost morphs to like, oh, it looks like the background is like melting at times, and she's like getting really emotional when she, uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's an emotional scene that she has on her earth, and you could see almost how things like start to melt. There, there are just so many details in so many. Uh, nuances to what they do with the animation here i can't wait to go back and analyze it more i feel like i picked up on a lot of things that this movie had hidden but you know what there's got to be stuff that i missed i can't wait to go back and re-watch this movie but it just shows the creativity of this team and the people behind making this movie just in the style and animation it really just blew my mind it really did. I, I, you know, I haven't seen anything like this in animation. It's a completely different style. It feels right for this character. The, you know, the one of the great things of, about Spider-Man in movies is that web slinging moment. Um, you know, we get that at the end of the Raimi movies. We get that in the Garfield movies. We get that in the John Watt, Tom Holland movies. Um. Raimi and Garfield, I think Garfield probably has the best swing, personally. Raimi's is iconic. I'll be honest, the Tom Holland swing kind of sucks. But this, what they do with Into the Spider-Verse and with Across the Spider-Verse, just that feeling of watching this character who I personally and many other audience members have grown up watching, grown up reading Spider-Man, watching you know, cartoon Spider-Man on TV, all that stuff. To see that character or in, in Miles Morales, in, you know, maybe it's Peter B. Parker. It doesn't matter. Miles Morales feels like your Spider-Man. And that's one of the great things about this character. There's no, like, like people can get real weird, like, oh, it's not Peter Parker Spider-Man. So he's not really my Spider-Man. I don't have that issue with Miles Morales. When I see Miles Morales swinging, that feels like, the Spider-Man that I grew up watching, or just a just an evolution of that character, and it's a just a great feeling if you're a, just a hardcore fan of this character to see the the way they craft him swinging and going throughout New York, which is just such a pivotal, in my opinion, at least a pivotal part of that character. It's so beautiful to watch, and and at times it, some of the sequences in this movie. It's a very emotional movie. I was kind of surprised by that, kind of taken aback the places that this movie goes. But just as a Spider-Man fan, it really does give you goosebumps to see what they're able to do with this animation and how it always goes back to service the characters. It always goes back to service the story. That's always first and foremost with these movies. The animation is great, and it's almost the first thing every person goes to when walking out of the theater. But my main takeaway afterwards was like, my gosh, like, They've made the best Spider-Man story. They they understand this character so well, and they're able to evolve this character and where we were into the Spider-Verse and how that continues into the sequel. 
feels like the natural evolution of where we would go after Into the Spider-Verse. I think this is a step up from Into the Spider-Verse in a lot of ways. I'm going to talk about where this ranks later on at, towards the end of the discussion, but man, I mean, this they build so well off of what the first movie did. It, it's really an incredible feat. And Lord and Miller, you know, they directed Le the Lego movie. I like that movie, but that is a lot coming at you and this movie across the spider-verse has a lot going at you not quite at the lego movie level which is arguably one of the more fast-paced movies of the 21st century but this movie has a lot coming at you and so it may be overwhelming i will say it may be overwhelming for some viewers i was able to keep up with a lot of this movie and it was it didn't really take me back as much i heard some people going this may be this was a little too much for me i didn't i personally did not have that experience but I understand why that may be the case for some people. Jokes are coming at you so quickly. Easter eggs, cameos, all that stuff is just moving so quickly. And the music's nonstop, all that stuff. But at the same time, this movie also knows when to stop at, and sit with our characters at the right moments. The first act or so of this movie is arguably, I think it's definitely the longest act of the movie. You know, if, if we're looking at the act one, act two, act three structure... Act one is definitely the longest. But that may, be, that may be a critique for some. It wasn't for me, though. I thought the Raimi series did easily the best in terms of the drama of Spider-Man and the, you know, the typical, you know, running late and all that stuff that we see with the Spider-Man character since the Stanley and Steve Ditko days and, and how that has continued into the movies and the comic books still to this day. And it's one of the most pivotal parts, not pivotal, but um, key signatures of Spider-Man. And to see that in the Miles Morales character being late, trying to be on time, and, and it's the, the constant battle of Spider-Man and living a normal life. That's always the constant battle with this character. And we get to see that in the first act of this movie, and it feels so natural. It feels right for this character because that's always what Spider-Man has struggled with. It's And we see that with every Spider-Man in this universe. We see it with Peter B, Peter B. Parker and Gwen Stacy. We see it with Miles Morales. It's always that battle of family life and Spider-Man. And I really liked how this movie showed that for Miles Morales, having to balance the Spider-Man, having to balance uh, the normal life. And we get to see some of that and how that butt butts heads with the parents who I love the scenes that the parents get with Miles. Uh, there's a particularly great scene between Miles and his mom that is kind of it, it kind of really sets up the main theme for Spider-Man and, and how Miles still is kind of coming to his own in a in a different way than what we saw uh, with Into the Spider-Verse. And I really liked that scene. It, feel, it felt right. And how that continues through the rest of the movie uh, really sets a strong theme for Across the Spider-Verse. And a, like I said, a really great natural evolution for this character. The first act may be slow for some, but I think the drama, the drama that the that is throughout the first act it, it is very much centered on really the drama of the story and between Miles and his parents, which doesn't really have much of a resolution, which I'll kind of talk about this being a part one of two and 
how in a way that's a critique that, that I'm going to give this movie, but it's really up to your interpretation. Miles does have an arc in this movie, but I think Gwen Stacy is the obvious character for who has the biggest arc. Miles has a subtle arc, I think, but Gwen really does have the main arc. And they both shared this movie in a way with Gwen arguably being more of the main character than Miles in certain aspects. Like Miles, I think, still has the, mo the most screen time, but Gwen's arc is a big part of this movie and makes it, the, in a way, a complete story. This is not a complete story, but in a way, thematically, Gwen's arc brings some sort of resolution to the end of the movie. But th the way the writers handled the drama in the first act is really well done. There's so much going on. There's the, the animation's beautiful. You're marveled by every frame. But when you get down to the actual writing, they put just as much effort into the writing as they do into the animation. It doesn't feel like an avatar where this is really all just about the visuals and then story and characters seem to always come second. With Across the Spider-Verse, it is an equal it's story and character are still first and foremost. And to see these great bits of dialogue between our characters where it feels so natural, it feels so real, despite, you know, the heightened state of everything and the uh, uh, the animation just being so incredible, when you get down to those character moments in the dialogue, it's still really well done. It doesn't feel like a Thor love and thunder where it's like there's a sheet of glass between the characters and there's no chemistry Haley Steinfeld and uh, uh, Shamik Moore feel like these characters, and I'll always associate them with these characters. It it feels like an actual performance in the voice acting. All these voice actors, Oscar Isaac, easily giving his best blockbuster performance. Star Wars, uh, X-Men, throw that all aside. This is his best performance. His voice acting here is really, really strong. And Shamik Moore and Haley Steinfeld do a terrific job. Brian Tyree Henry is terrific as Miles' dad. Uh, same with Luna Lauren uh, Velez as Miles' mom. These performances, these voice acting performances feel so connected to the character. And when we have them talking to one another, it feels like they're in the same room. It, Haley Steinfeld and Shamik Moore's voice acting performances like have better chemistry than you know what we've gotten from the past few Spider-Man movies. It's really incredible what this movie is able to do here. You're not going to find me giving a lot of negatives with this movie. You're, you're just not. I, I can't really think of any besides the part one, part two aspect, which does kind of bug me because part, partially because this movie's so good, I would have rather we just, you know, give me the next one. Like, but we're going to have to wait till next year. Early next year, I believe, is when part two comes out. Thankfully, it won't be taking us five years to get part three. But it's incredible what they're able to do here on the character side. And the not just the physical uh, you know, challenges that Miles has to go to, battling like all these different Spider-Man when he this will be a partial spoil. I'm, this is gonna be a spoiler free review or spoiler review, by the way. There will be spoilers in this review. You know my thoughts. It's a great movie. Go watch it. To see what Miles has to overcome in this movie, not just you know, on the physical level, but on the mental level. And 
the twists and turns that turns that the script takes that I for one did not see coming. There are certain twists towards the end that I caught on to, but there are also certain things in this movie that completely come out of the blue and were a surprising but really, really well done uh, build on this character and build on this world. What a sequel always has to do is give us a little bit more of the world building from the first movie. And I thought that was one of the things that this movie did really well is how it, uh, it goes. It's, I, don't, I, don't, I forget the term that they use, but these like key moments that every Spider-Man has um, that like are almost they like have to happen or whatever. And or at least that's the way Spider-Man 2099 sees it. And him kind of being somewhat of the antagonist for Miles as well with um, – uh, uh, spot, uh, played by uh, Jason Schwartzman. We kind of have two antagonists here, but to see like these key moments and how that almost is a build on some of the stuff that into the Spider Verse kind of planted, but across the Spider Verse is continuing. It just made for a a really nice piece of world building that you know. I'm going to talk a little bit more about what this movie and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and potentially The Flash mean for the superhero conversation. But it just shows, it just shows that we are not tired of superhero movies. We're just tired of bad writing. So I'm going to get into that later. But to see what this this animated movie is able to do with its script and with its characters and how things are building off of one another and the the cast of characters that feel so vast and the scale is just a tenfold and way more massive than Into the Spider-Verse. The movie arguably has um, is more personal and has better drama than what Into the Spider-Verse did, which is so rare to find where – you have, you know, the great, uh, the first film, which is lower scale, but it's got the drama. Then they always take the scale up, but the characters in the drama, they kind of, they the ratio isn't quite as there. It, the, the 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 scale trumps the characters and the story more. That's not the case with Across the Spider Verse. The scale is ramped up tenfold, and yet the drama and characterization has never been better. It's better than what they did in with Into the Spider-Verse. The drama feels more personal. It feels like they put more time into it than they even did with Into the Spider-Verse, which I thought had great drama. It's so impressive that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is able to elevate that even more with this sequel, with this second installment. Miles' arc over the story feels as though there is more to come from where we started here in act one and the journey that he's going to have to go on. And I'm not sure where exactly part three is going to go because it felt like, and I knew this was a part one of two and I could definitely tell that not a lot of people in my theater knew that because when this movie ended, I heard like, Oh uh-uh, no, I heard a lot of groans. I got like, people were mad. People were like more mad that this is a part one of two than they were with infinity war. Just saying, like, it's a testament to this movie that this cliffhanger, I'm arguably more excited for part three than I am for Endgame because I think part three is going to be better than Endgame. I know this is better than Infinity War. 
these movies are just doing comic book movies so much better than I feel like what the MCU has ever done personally. I'm not meaning to be an MCU hater. It's just a testament to how talented these writers and these animators are behind the scene. And in our director here, uh, uh, Joaquin Dos, Dos Santos and Justin K. Thompson, the directors here just do a fantastic job. And the writers do as well. It, it feels like such a great evolution of the Spider-Man character and just a great evolution for the comic book genre as a whole, which now more than ever as of late has felt like, man, fatigue has never been stronger than it has now. And I know we always go back, oh, superhero fatigue. And then, then we'll get a super movie. It's like, oh no, superhero fatigue hasn't gone away. What, what, the problem is, is that some of these superhero movies have just been really bland, mediocre. Not Some of them have been bad. But it's really the consistent, mediocre quality that we've been getting from the comic book genre recently. To get a breath of fresh air with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and here, especially with Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, it feels like finally... <laughs> Finally, we're getting some people who are tapping into what this genre can be where superhero movies are still so crucial to pop culture and to people and, and what superheroes represent. They may seem, you know, uh, quaint at times and, oh, it's, you know, it's just it's just comic books and stuff and how silly, how trivial. But superhero movies are the themes that they're able to tackle, simple as they may be, still have relevance uh, to audience members. And that's important. Comic book movies are important when they're at their best. The Dark Knight's an important film. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is an important film. This movie is an important film. Comic book movies are capable of being more than simply the roller coaster rides that Martin Scorsese famously said and, you know, the MCU has kind of become known for, where occasionally the MCU has become a little bit more than that. But right now, they're roller coaster rides, and I don't think there's much more beyond that. That's at least where they're at right now. That can change, but it certainly seems that's where they're at right now. It's so incredible when we get a comic book movie. It happens so rarely. It really does. But it's so great to finally get a comic book movie that tackles... Or, or at least rises to the call to be more than just that roller coaster ride. It's truly art. And that may sound like really pretentious to say, but uh, that is what Across the Spider Verse achieves. That's what The Dark Knight achieves. Logan, those rare examples where these comic book movies are more than just, you know, you know, comic book characters being on the big screen. They really tap into mature themes and characters that feel real and have chemistry and have a great arc. And, and, and really the themes that this movie tackles and Into the Spider-Verse tackles and has a more to them than just, you know, the, the confetti that I feel like a lot of superhero movies just kind of naturally fall into. I understand why they do. I'm not saying that, that they're stupid for always going in that direction, but it happens more and more. It's so great to get a comic book movie out because I'm a comic book fan. Batman, Spider-Man, Wolverine. I, I, I'm a big comic book movie fan when they're done right. And this is an example of the comic book movies being done right. And it's 
truly the definition definition of a breath of fresh air where every aspect of this movie from the visuals down to the writing and the characters excels so well and it has nothing for me to nitpick as slower as act one may be if it's drama based look how well done they do with this with the drama i mean when was the last time we got a superhero movie that really does this stuff that well into the spider-verse probably i mean that's really the last time we got something this good in terms of drama in a come this and the Batman into the Spider-Verse, The Dark Knight, Logan. Like these are the rare exceptions, in in my opinion at least, that tap into what comic book movies truly do mean. Outside of some of the surface level stuff that we see from DC, Marvel, the average stuff that we get from both of those respective properties. But going back to the discussion of really of Cross the Spider Verse, um, I, I do want to mention Spider Man twenty ninety nine. He's a very welcome presence in his presence in this movie. He's very cool design, and I think Oscar Isaac does a great job voicing the character. There's a lot here that I feel like hopefully the third movie will tap into a little bit more on. I still feel like there's some unanswered questions with this character and how he feels a little bit different than. Any of the other Spider-Man characters, we get other great side characters like a uh, Spider-Punk uh, played by Daniel Kaluuya, who I absolutely loved. Uh, Scarlet Spider uh, played by uh, Andy Samberg, right? Andy Samberg, which was awesome. That was a very welcome cameo. Wish we could have gotten more of him. Uh, Jason Schwartzman as Spot is great. He's got a pretty basic um, drive throughout the movie and he's big in act one but kind of is almost a presence in the later part of the movie i thought jason schwartzman did a great job voicing the character um he definitely it definitely you could tell as soon as he speaks yeah that's that's definitely jason schwartzman but i really do um i'm really interested in where this character is going to go we kind of think of this character in the comic books as being pretty trivial. So it's it's interesting that this series is not just going, oh, Green Goblin, Doc Ock, you know, the, the pretty rudimentary Spider-Man villains that we see all the time. It's really cool to me that this series is, is taking some of the lesser known villains and doing a lot with them and, and making them rise up to that, a level tier despite being b c i would say spots like a c level villain maybe even a d to have him rise up and actually be a really good villain and a really good foil for spider-man uh is a is a really cool choice by the writers um and it's just a nice change of pace it seems like we get green goblin and doc ock all the time venom all the time so it's a really, really nice change of pace. There's so many other great side characters. Uh, it does, I think, uh, Spider-Woman, the, the one on the bike, uh, feels a little, uh, Jessica Drew, a little too much. She doesn't, doesn't really do a whole lot for me here. Um, but there are, I mean, there's so many fun jokes in this movie. I, I laughed a lot throughout this movie, but despite being very serious and very grim at times, particularly in the second half, 
there's some things told to <laughs> to Mouse Mouse by Spider-Man 2099 that are really dark. And the movie ends in a really dark, you know, like I said, cliffhanger spot. So this movie is definitely not afraid to go to those places. But at the same time, I'm constantly laughing, smiling throughout. I think I had a smile on my face the whole time. I mean, it, it is just such a blast. It's a long movie. And, and that was one of the complaints that my brother had was it's a little long. Uh, I, this movie blew by, in my opinion. I could have taken another two hours, quite frankly. Um Give me part three now. That's all I got to say. But um, I didn't really feel like the runtime was an issue. It is so fast paced and that may be a problem for some, but I was, um, I was 100% on board. This movie is just such a rush of adrenaline and emotion and heart. I just don't understand a, a, a single like negative review, honestly. Like if, if you have any level of interest in Spider-Man as a character, I really do think you're going to, Really love this movie. I do want to mention the cliffhanger aspect of things. The cliffhanger doesn't necessarily bother me. It didn't at first, but I, I was also like, come on, can we just get a complete story? That part bothered me. I was just like, give me a complete story, please. The The Gwen Stacy arc is so well done. It's so beautiful. And Haley Steinfeld as this character, I'll always associate her with, uh, with this character and the evolution that she goes through over the course of the movie, it, I think is really well done. And uh, the arc is beautiful and really emotional. And Miles gets a lot of emotional moments throughout the movie as well. And that's a good arc and some of a resolution, but it definitely felt like we could have, you know, maybe done a little bit more. I don't know. Um, as far as resolving the movie, but I understand it. It's a big cliffhanger. I mean, it, it succeeds 100%. I'm very excited for part three. It couldn't come soon enough. But, you know, a, a certain part of me was like, do we have to end on a cliffhanger? Like, can't we just get a complete story? I understand it, though. I understand that. It makes – the only thing I'll say about the cliffhanger that I'm just going to have to hold against this movie is I can't put this above Into the Spider-Verse right now. In many ways, it's a better movie, but I have to see part three – to know where I place this movie in the Spider-Man rankings that are in my, you know, my superhero rankings, all that stuff. I need to see part three before I cast that judgment. Just because if part three doesn't work, then part two isn't going to work for me. Because as great as this movie is, I need to know that the resolution works to make it all worth it worth it in the end. But it's a, it's a thrilling ride. All two hours and 20 minutes are Every bit as thrilling and as heartfelt as you could hope for from a Spider-Man movie. It's such a breath of fresh air. It's easily the best movie this year. Easily the best movie this year. This is going to be a hard one to top. I've heard The Flash is good. I don't think it's going to reach this level. But this is a beautiful, heartfelt, thrill, thrilling ride. It just And emotional as well. It's 100% a recommend. 100%. In summary, a beautiful movie, emotional, it, the encapsulation in many ways of the potential that comic book movies have. They're not a dead genre, and this movie proves that. And Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 proves that. The Batman proves that. We can still get great comic book movies like this. We just you know, haven't been getting them a lot recently. 
Um, so this was this. I, I had a blast watching this. Go see it in IMAX on the biggest screen. Uh, I l- love this experience. I can't wait to go watch it again. Loved it. Absolutely loved this movie. Very strong. Re- very very strong recommend. Glad we could come on the show and really give a positive review. Um, hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, I believe Transformers comes out this weekend. I don't know if I'll be seeing it. I hope to. And that I will give you guys my review. It looks to be fairly decent from the trailers. I haven't heard any of the reviews yet. Um, but hopefully I'll get that review out soon. Sorry that this one took a little longer. But uh, anyway, I hope that you guys enjoyed this review. There's a lot of other stuff that I'm wanting to do with this show. Uh, listenership has actually picked up a little bit more than it has recently. It's still not a lot, but it's picked up a bit more. Um, so I, I thought about trying the YouTube thing again. That didn't really work out with the equipment that I had at the time, but I'm figuring, I figured I'd put a little bit more into it, give you guys some different types of reviews, and etc. Let me know if you guys want that. Uh, MovieMayX2020 at gmail.com. Uh, any thoughts on that or the movie itself? I'll do a Spider-Man movie ranking at some point. Um, probably this week, hopefully. I can get that done this week. And then a Transformers review. We'll see how it goes. Uh, thank you guys once again so much for listening to this review. I hope that you liked it. Uh, give the show a good uh, five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Greatly, greatly appreciate you guys, the ones who do listen. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed this review. Feedback is always appreciated. I'll see you guys next time. Peace.